happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 122 for January the 23rd, 2019. My name is Wes Fryer. I am delighted to come to you tonight from the magnificent Oklahoma City where we had a really big change of the weather You'll think when you listen to our introductions, it's a weather show, but really we're not. Uh, we left the room, left the house at 55 degrees yesterday and came home at a frigid 31. Jason, can you believe it got to be 31 degrees? We almost died. But I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School, and we are here to talk ed tech and news. We took a week off last week, and I'm joined always by Jason Neifer, Dr. Neifer, also Perhaps going to be trying out for a Duck Dynasty sequel, which I understand <laughs> they'll be filming in Missoula this summer. And so he still has a little bit more time to, to grow the beard even further. Jason, it's great to see you tonight. Uh, great to see you, Wes. And apologies last week, everyone, for uh, our missed show. Variety of factors kind of played into us not being able to bring the current EdTech news to you. But we're glad to be back here this week. I know this is one of my best hours every week, getting a chance to talk tech with Wes. My name is Jason Neifer, and when I'm not growing my hipster Civil War beard, um, I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous unit. University of Montana campus, and I love talking about the weather. Maybe it's because I'm from Montana, but it has been snowing for four straight days here. So we have piles of really wet, sloppy snow, and it was up into the uh, upper 30s uh, this afternoon, which means that uh, it's turned into slush. So I have to drive uh, two hours tomorrow, early tomorrow morning to be at an 8.45 a.m. legislative hearing at the Montana legislature to talk about my program. Um, so I am looking forward to uh, transversing the roads uh, in lovely western Montana. Um, and before um, we get to the week's news, let's tell you about what this podcast thing is. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We like to take a look at headlines from across technology journalism and maybe take a look at them from a bit of an educational standpoint. Both Wes and I have extensive backgrounds working in and around schools, and we like to read tech news, but more importantly, we like to think about how this impacts the classroom and what happens in the critical relationship between teacher and student. And so with that in mind, Wes, uh, lots of, like, beginning of the year is always really interesting because CES is a dominant topic, uh, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, which happens the first week of January. Then it becomes a little quieter for a while, and then there starts to be release of new cell phones. That picks up the noise again. But where would you like to start this week, sir? Actually, uh, you've put some CES stuff in. Why don't we pick up there? Because I think last time we were, we were previewing some, and, you know, it's always interesting to see what the, the futurists and, and actually the folks that are testing the waters, because a lot of those products may or may not make, you know, the actual consumer shelves. So what, what stood out from, for you this year being an, an onlooker from afar at CES? Sure. So um, in Gadget, in Gadget, excuse me, had a really great article on January 10th that uh, they named their best of CES winners. And there are some really interesting things that I think are, are worth maybe taking a quick look at um, if you're interested in the broad consumer electronics landscape. Um, first and foremost, uh, and, and some of these things, interestingly enough, I didn't hear about as part of the mainstream coverage. And that's part of the problem with CES is there are so many ridiculous things that happen at CES that sometimes you miss out on the really big announcements that weren't quite as maybe fantastic, 
but still I think will have a great impact on uh, consumer technology culture. So first and foremost, um, I did get a chance to read a brief article this was a couple weeks ago, and there was some additional coverage on it in an Engadget, but there is a really interesting uh, thing called Gems H from Samsung, which they're advertising, uh, Engadget's advertising the best accessibility tech, but um, it's basically an assistive wearable um that uh it's like an exoskeleton um that uh, uh can help your gait when you are walking and i i couldn't really like i there's apparently a a, a video uh, on youtube i did queue it up for for later viewing that kind of shows what it has the possibility to do but one of the reasons why i was super uh interested in this is that and it's it's intended to be a rehabilitative technology is that i myself struggle with my walking gait. And one of the things that you know, we would never have the opportunity to talk about on a tech podcast is that I kind of walk like a duck and uh, forever and ever and ever, I my feet kind of go like this uh, for our viewers able to watch the video when I walk. And um, now in my, my mid forties, having gone through a couple of, uh, well, one major health crisis in my life, um, I'm starting to focus on things that I may have not had the energy or the opportunity to focus on before. It's found out that I have some problems with my right hip and leg. And I was really uh, interested in this notion of kind of an exoskeleton that helps decrease the pressure in some parts of a rehabilitating leg, but also help reformulate your gait. And uh, having seen a physical therapist for my, my, my awkward walking, I'm really interested now in the notion of, of that particular design. And I think this, uh, again, what gets really kind of ridiculous about CES is that um, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of interesting um, uh, uh, information about the fantastic, but there's relatively few things um, that are really practical that I think get that kind of coverage. So I thought that was a pretty interesting product. Um, let's see. There's a couple of interesting new televisions that I think, you know, televisions are televisions, but the one that probably received the most, um, uh, attention was the roll TVs. The LG OLED TVR is a rolling television and we've been promised flexible screens for some time now. That's been something that's been a big part of the screen, uh, uh, futuristic look that, that companies tend to do when it comes to television technology, but LG has released a, uh, foldable panel that kind of rolls up into a, a, a kind of a box. It looks like a big, huge um, sound bar that the screen kind of rolls up from. And uh, I, I don't know if I didn't see if there was any um, uh, pricing on this particular television, but it is a 4K television from LG, has a 65 inch screen, and it looks really hella cool. Like it's something that it would be very nice in a futuristic kind of Star Trek-y kind of room. And then I'll just mention one other, um, and I think we may have mentioned this once or twice in the past, the podcast, the other one that was super interesting, and I have one very practical one that uh, um, I'll mention is uh, the Impossible Burger 2 was also released at CES. Uh, the Impossible Burger is a completely meatless burger. Um, that apparently quite mimics the hamburger experience. Um, I am not a vegetarian, although I will tell you I have a, I'd say a mixed uh, uh, relationship with meat, which is a ridiculous thing to say. Now I said it out loud, but I do have some ethical problems the way animals are treated um, in in the production of meat, particularly in 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 the corporate structure in the United States. And so I'm not uh, wholly against looking at alternatives, but the Impossible Burger One was 
very controversial because a lot of people felt that there were unintended potential health consequences to consuming the impossible burger. And it did a lot of interesting science tricks to or kind of mimic a juicy uh, meat like burger in version one. And apparently version two is just ridiculous. Like it, it is you would be hard pressed to tell a difference between an impossible burger two and an actual hamburger. And then I'll mention one other quick, uh, more practical product. And then I'd like to hear your thoughts, Wes, about any of the, the kind of headlines here. Um, the best PC, uh, according to Engadget, was the Dell XPS 13. Um, every year, Dell gets a lot of love, uh, at least they has in the last couple of years, as they've released more and more really high-end laptops. But the reason why I mentioned the XPS 13, it's a laptop I actually recommend quite a bit to Windows-using friends. It's a beautiful laptop. It's a, a, a high amount of industrial design. Um, it's flat. It's got a great battery. Uh, if you picked up one in the last two years, it's got USB-C, which is a wonderful uh, charging platform, but the big change this year is they've moved the uh, webcam, which used to be at the lower left-hand side of the screen, back to the top of the screen, and actually my boss, who, who uses on my recommendation in XPS 13, used to call the lower left-hand side webcam the jowl cam, because you would get on a call, and for those of you who are able to view, or, or, or like this is the kind of view you would get, right? Like, you'd be on a, a, a conference call, and you'd see, you know, this, and then, so it's, you know, the jowl, or in my case, the Civil War beard cam, and, um, you know, you'd have to like like look down to do it and he hates it so much so that we we got we we looked around for a long time and found a clippable webcam that you could plug in via USB C and and clip on the top of a screen so he could take conference calls which is a big part of of, of the work we do at the Digital Academy and he'll be happy to know and I have already told him that uh, I think we're pretty close to his update uh, or update cycle that maybe time to get rid of the jowl cam uh, for uh, Mr. Career, executive director. So, Wes, anything stick out from you uh, from the CES show beyond what we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Well, I really enjoy uh, listening to different Twit podcasts. And this time of year, you know, you're gonna you're gonna hear a lot. Um, the Impossible Burger was one of mine as well. I dropped an article in from Forbes on on January 11th. Um, the it's I think it's really a sign of the times that a a top prize winning product at an elect consumer electronics show is food, right? And so it's indicating the ways in which technology is coming into uh, biology and the ways in which it's just, you know, permeating all these different aspects of our, of our lives. Um, I think this new version is soy based. Was that was the first 1.0 wheat based or do you remember what, what it was based? I it was a different. Remember, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, the description here in this Forbes article says that if Impossible Burger 1.0 tasted like an OK Sizzler steak, the 2.0 version is more like a well-massaged Kobe ribeye. So that's a, a pretty it, it's pretty fascinating. Right. Um, so I, I think, you know, jobs of the future, thinking about where our, our, our students are going to go, what kinds of things should we be studying and doing, of course, the intersection of biology and technology is just going to continue to grow and grow. So that was a, a sign of the times there. I don't have a link to it, but on, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Uh, Padre. He's like, he's on, he's on a pass from, from, uh, from the Vatican. Oh, Robert come, Bell. Come back uh, a couple of times. Robert. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was on, on the latest twit, you know, there was a, a product that 
uh, kind of reminds me, you know, like of, um, you know, for diabetes, as far as monitoring blood sugar and something that's taped to you, but it actually monitors your bladder and it gives you a readout, you know, of how full it is. And so anyway, thinking about folks that are in care facilities and thinking about, um, you know, the ways in which uh, the the monitoring of our bodies can um, hopefully afford us, you know, a greater opportunity for higher levels of care. Um, just, you know, pretty fascinating. And I think we saw the consolidation, I don't know if that's the right word, but the Apple Watch really getting, um, you know, centered on, you know, health, on fitness, on ways in which, you know, biofeedback and, and being able to have data, uh, you know, your your life can can be improved and you can make better choices when you have more data. Um, I think that, you know, all, all of those are, are signs. But of course, I think we probably share this each year, not that we've been doing this that many years, but it's, it's always important not to just be distracted by what is shiny and by what is new. There's a tendency at CES, you know, and, and in the tech journalism press for that, you know, to be the focus. So really yeah. uh, um, life changing there? No. Um, but continuing to see the march of, you know, processors and chips and, you know, the way in which the bar is raised of expectation of what everybody's camera can do. Uh, it's going to be pretty interesting to see 5G, you know, get rolled out and see the kinds of products that it unleashes because we certainly had a variety of services and products from, you know, Uber, Lyft, ride sharing in general, along with Airbnb and other kinds of products that, you know, really couldn't function without 4G LTE connectivity in, uh, in urban areas. And so I think that CES, and this is where technology is hand in hand, not only just the devices, but the connectivity, you know, and the, and the maturity of the web and, and what it's able to do. Um, I think CES is going to be much more exciting when, uh, we have more 5G devices and we have, um, you know, that kind of, that kind of potential. So yeah. Exciting, and I don't think I'd put that though on my short list of, of places I really want to go. I think I'd rather rather go to Google I/O or you know yeah. something something else. Um, but it certainly would be an experience, and and depending upon what's happening with technology, you know, for a particular year, um, there there are going to be um, you know game changing technologies that emerge. We're still waiting for that to happen with augmented reality AR. We're still waiting for that to happen with with VR virtual reality. Um, but the maturing of these technologies is kind of a, you know, it's, it's the turtle that's just, you know, it's keeping on going, keeping on going. Maybe that's the wrong analogy. It's, it's, you know, a rabbit going really fast. Anyway, it's progressing and there's large bets that are being made on those technologies. And so, uh, we, I don't think we saw a breakout technology in those areas yet, but we're, you know, certainly seeing the more, uh, this is my last thought, <clears throat> the ubiquity of the smart assistant and just all kinds of things. And evidently, uh, Amazon with Madam A, you know, still ahead because of its integrations, but the number of hand, you know, handsets because of, uh, of Android that, you know, Google is, is on. Um, I would just be most excited to see Apple music come to the Google assistant, but don't think that's going to be happening, but yep. it, it's, uh, you know, it's it pretty, pretty interesting to see how normal is changing with that. And it's just much more, yeah, of course we integrate with, you know, the smart assistants. Right. And then I would, would make one note. We can move on from the, the kind of broader CS topic. There's a great article from CNET from January 11th that talks about um, 
the kind of winner of CES, Amazon versus Google. And one of the things to remember about CES is that Apple hasn't been at CES, at least not broadly at CES, for a long time. They just don't go to this show. And they used to have other kind of Apple-focused shows they go to, and they're starting to appear a little more at trade shows. They had stopped trade shows completely for a while, preferring their own events that they could kind of control, including um, uh, their developers conference every year, the Worldwide Developers Conference, uh, and then also their own product launches. But there's a fascinating discussion uh, between a couple of CNET reporters about who won Amazon or Google, and both the commentators agreed that Google had won based on the announcements they made regarding smart assistants, right? Like that's where it seems to be where all the energy is, is, is kind of right now, like who will win the smart assistant war. It's sad and interesting to me that Siri is never mentioned in this. And I think that we could broadly consider Siri not quite dead, but just not something that is really keeping up in the smart assistant arena. And as a reminder, my doctoral dissertation research was about the implementation of Siri in the classroom. And one of the things that I did add some commentary to my dissertation about Regarding that particular situation was that um, I felt as though the abandonment of Siri in, 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 in my perception by Apple, and I did have a lot of mainstream technology sources that back me up on this, you may have led to this being less than a positive uh, uh, or clear experience for kids because Google and Alexa are kicking um, I'm sorry for saying Miss A's name there, but uh, uh, the Google platform and the Amazon platform are kicking uh, 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 Siri up and down the voice architecture. So, absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, let me segue because uh, I'll just sure. drop an, drop an article in. I, we made it. I don't know if we mentioned it, uh, but Apple had a huge ad at CES. You know, plastered over the the side of a, of a hotel. And it was that, you know, whatever stays, you know, whatever happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. <laughs> and so it's a, a direct dig at, you know, the companies that are based on a, on an economic model called surveillance capitalism. And so that's the segue I'd like to make to our category of links, which, as we've mentioned, you can find on edtechsr.com slash links. Um, and the heading is, well, there's really, we're talking about these in a couple areas. We have data and privacy, but we've also got a category called technology correction. And that is a term that Jason, you know, coined, uh, you know, a few months ago, uh, which we're seeing as, as a backlash, uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica and legislation, GDPR, different things like that are, are elements of that. So the first thing I want to draw people's attention to is a revised page that I have made um, and uh, got, got Jason's blessing and also, you know, taken links that we've we've shared on the show, um, which we've titled at this point Surveillance, Privacy and Digital Citizenship, the Technology Correction. And so you can find that on edtechsr.com slash tech correction. Now, this used to be basically about the surveillance state. And in November of 2016, I shared a TEDx presentation up in Enid, Oklahoma, um, called, um, what was it? The, uh, the survey, you know, digital citizenship in the surveillance state or something like that. And, and, you know, connecting the dots about what's happening, you know, in terms of technology companies, economic models, um, the ways that the legislation and people are being upset, I've, you know, this uh, particular page basically um, organizes things in, in a couple of different categories. And so I put a big category, which I want to talk a little bit about tonight, surveillance capital, capitalism resources. You know, documentaries we've mentioned on the show before uh, from PBS from October, The Facebook Dilemma. It's a great two-part series. Um, a couple podcasts, you know, we've talked about Noah Harari and Tristan Harris. 
um, and their great interview in Wired in October talking about how humans get hacked. And then there's a lot of books that touch on it. Then there's surveillance state resources. So document, you know, documentary films, um, books, um, and then there's some Twitter lists and then some advocacy organizations. Uh, what I want to talk a little bit br briefly um, really centers upon a book and a podcast. So um, the podcast is called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and it's on the Twit Network. It's Triangulation 380, and it's an interview with a woman who is a professor at the Harvard Business School. For seven years, she's been working on this book. Her name is Sh Shoshana Zuboff. And her book is called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. And this is a fantastic hour-long show which talks about the birth of surveillance capitalism. And, you know, Jason and I make no secret of, of our love, I think, for Google and for the ways in which Google gives us powerful tools and allows us to, to do amazing things. But one of the things to recognize that's happened, and while Facebook has had the most egregious violations of user trust and, um, you know, just, I think, done some pretty unforgivable things that, that should lead and hopefully still will lead um, to, you know, their CEO Zuckerberg stepping down and to some real consequences for them. Uh, Google also, you know, around 2001, I think is when they're saying, you know, move beyond targeted advertisement, which I think a lot of us kind of say, yeah, that, that's okay. You know, I'm trading, you know, this free access to Gmail and Google Docs and these things to, to see some, some customized ads when I'm outside my education G suite, right? We're just talking about that at school and how we're, going to more clearly communicate that to, to our parents this next year. Um, you know, Google treats schools and education differently in terms of, of target advertising and all that thing. So all that stuff as far as uh, harvesting. The point she's making is surveillance um, capitalism is, is just gathering, as we've talked about on the show, and we've got some articles, you know, talking about this, this massive cloud of data about us, and we're voluntarily giving this, but it's not in the same way that a credit report allows us to, you know, Look up, what do you got on me? Do you have any mistakes? Can I correct it? It's opaque to us. We're not able to see it. And their goal is hacking our behavior and our brains. And so it's not just on a consumer level where they want to, you know, create a desire for us to, you know, um, you know, purchase products and, and go out and spend. Um, it also, you know, transfers over to the political arena. You know, how are we going to vote? Are we going to vote? And it's right. about predicting behavior. And so with the power of AI, these computer systems in some ways, perhaps, you know, knowing us even better than we know ourselves as far as their predictive capacity, because the more data points that you can have, GPS and geolocation fits into this, who my friends are and the kinds of things they do and they hang out with, the kinds of things I say I, I like um, and, and things that I say, emotion, my face, the ways in which, you know, uh, you're able to with, with uh, facial recognition to be able to, to determine mood and things like that. Wow. It is a really pretty jaw-dropping world. And, and I think part of our responsibility as, as educators and citizens, and this is a part of the cross-connect over to digital citizenship, is to determine what role advocacy will play in this and how are we going to either, you know, sit back and watch or are we going to try and become active, you know, advocates and, and you know, 
people who are involved in the in the political process because that's one of the answers that Shoshana Zuboff answers in this. She doesn't see this as a completely fruitless sort of thing. She thinks it's going to take quite a while before, you know, we wake up. But if you look at the Gilded Age and the way in which we had antitrust legislation, I mean, what she I'll, I'll say this and then toss this to you to, to comment <laughs> on. Um, so we don't have schema or background knowledge in our heads as, as, as human beings, really, to grapple with this and to think about this. You know, authoritarianism, um, the rise of, you know, Nazism, um, you know, dictators. I mean, we, we've got, you know, ways to think about that or, or a flu virus, a pandemic, you know, but we really don't have um, the, the metaphors, the analogies, the, the headspace around all of this to really, you know, be grappling with it. So I just want to commend that resource to everybody, uh, you know, ask, you know, point to that resource for you. I, I don't know. I'm not sure where this is going to be. My wife was asking me last night, how are you going to do a, a keynote on this somewhere? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, I mean, maybe this is a, this is a book that, that needs to be written. I think there's important ways in which this crosses over into media literacy and the ways in which students are, are media savvy and aware of the ways in which, you know, companies and organizations and, and also entities, right? Any of us can get on Facebook and, and start running ads, you know, to try to shape people's uh, ideas and uh, spinning habits and, and whatever that, that we want to do. So, Jason, your thoughts on the technology correction. Is this really going to be a big deal, or do you think we can kind of like start, you know, stop talking about this next week? Uh, we're not going to stop talking about it next week. And one of the reasons why is because um, I, I think there's a couple factors involved. The first one is that it's not just about things like privacy. I think there are other arenas in which we are now questioning the impact of technology as it's implemented in, in various contexts and environments. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, there's some disagreement about this, and we can have a debate about this, and, and smart people can disagree about this. But... There's the emerging research that talks about that you're better off handwriting something than typing something in a le lecture note system because you learn less when you are essentially scripting or serving as a scribe in a, a, a lecture environment. Now, I've heard criticisms of this research from both neuroscientists and also from people that say, well, lecture sucks anyways. I think that there's a complex debate there we could have about that. But the bottom line is that's a good example where it might actually be to the benefit of learning to shut off laptops or to put lids down during a lecture note-taking environment. I'm not saying that's, that's the only example or even a great example of that, but I think we're starting to come to where it's uh, prolific enough, there's enough going on, classrooms are implementing these technologies at a high enough rate we can start talking about what's the best way to do this are there ways that that actually that you can implement that actually diminish learning and um, maybe more specific to education I think there are also ways that we could be having conversations about what does curriculum look like in a technology dominated world and I'll, I'll give you a really good example of this I have been in countless discussions. My academic area is social studies. I was a history teacher when I was in the classroom. It is something that I miss dearly because I loved teaching history and government and geography. 
I, I wonderful topics. I love discussing things with kids. I like challenging them. I like nudging them to think a little differently about things. I love playing devil's advocate. Um, uh, I love switching sides in the middle of, of a discussion just to shake things up a little bit and, um, you know, create uh, intrigue in the classroom. But I've been in cla- uh, discussions with teachers where they say things like, well, you know, we don't really need to teach content anymore because Google exists. And as I have said countless times uh, in our discussions in this podcast that Google is not information. Google is a tool you use to gather information so you can make judgments about what's right and wrong. It is not the arbiter of what is right and wrong. And every time we treat search as an information retrieval exercise as opposed to a critical thinking exercise, we make a vast mistake in how students can engage with information in our world. Or when we say, you know, you don't need to talk about content, especially factual content, these kids can Google it, that diminishes the fact that there's a whole industry around how to get information to the top of a web page search that may or may not be truthful information. Let's remember that a core of the accusations of social media's ills during the 2016 election was that fake news or completely fabricated facts were perpetuated by uh, bad actors in the discussion and the uh, engagement of, of electoral discussion process, right? So let's, you know, let's, let's not make the mistake to say that technology means, uh, you know, X in regards to classrooms. This is what I think is all broadly part of this technology correction that I think is naturally going to occur, right? And, and to be honest, I'm in this discussion daily. I run a virtual school. There are people that say things like the future is virtual learning. I do not agree with that at all. I'm an advocate for my program and an advocate for the opportunities it brings for students, but I do not think that the future of education is distance learning, right? I think that it's exclusively that. You don't think right. it's Yeah, exactly, right? Like, I think it's one of many options that we can utilize that, to be honest, um, you know, make things easier, not because they exist, but because they are part of a discussion, right? They're part of a, an option. They're part of a uh, an individualization of the educational process. And for the varieties of kids, the can't be in a face-to-face school for a variety of reasons or want to take more than school can offer them from eight to five, my program's amazing. But does that mean tomorrow I think all classes should be online classes? No, I do not believe that. And that's where I think we get in trouble in education. We tend to, I think, fetishize technology a little bit. We tend to be obsessed about it and and and, and start thinking it's an all or none proposition. And it's not. Like it's like it, with everything, it's complicated, right? We should treat it as such. So here's two quick articles, and then I'll, I'll give you the, the lead into that Washington Post tech backlash I think you put on. Um, Google, huge fine, 50 million pounds. Uh, France says uh, paying for, for uh, GDPR violations. This is Ars Technica on January the 21st. And, you know, as with a lot of, uh, of different complaints, you know, this, this may be, be litigated, uh, you know, in a, long, in a longer process, and, and the penalty may be less. Um, but basically, the assertion here is that Google violated two provisions of the GDPR, which is, you know, as as probably your as a listener know, you know, Europe's new privacy law that has some some pretty stringent requirements, um, saying that they did not make its data collection policies easily accessible enough, and secondly. They did not obtain sufficient and specific user consent for ad personalization across each of Google's numerous services, including YouTube, uh, Google Maps, and more. 
and so one of the things I would connect to our school lens on this, and, and we were having conversations about this today, um, is just really making sure we're doing a great job communicating with parents about the issues of privacy, about Google specifically, about what we have turned on, what we have turned off, about what, um, you know, parent, um, you know, rights are, whether you, you know, give parents the, the, the option as far as opting out or whether that's just part of your, your program. Um, one of the things that I, I know I hope to be able to, to be a part of doing better next year at school because I just heard you know feedback from parents when our kids move from elementary to middle school that's when the email gets turned on we have a google account for them in first grade but but until fifth grade they don't you know have their email but there's actually more than that right because you can chat in in google docs um until earlier this year you know we had google hangouts and hangout chat turned on and we actually made some adjustments there and in part of our philosophy, and I think that's a good one for parents at home and, and schools as well, you know, is giving students greater responsibility and greater freedom, you know, hopefully so right by the time they, they leave the nest and, and they're leaving school, I mean, they're, they're going to be able to make good decisions independently. I'm, I'm not saying we, we turn off all the filters for 12th graders. We, we actually don't do that. I, I don't think that would be a responsible thing to do, but, um, a connection to the classroom with this is, you know, making sure we are communicating clearly around the issues of privacy, around the issues of data collection, um, and, and that we're, we're attending as school leaders um, to these kinds of issues. The other you know, shouted article, which is kind of tangentially related, but part of the issue that regulation and that this, you know, possibly poses is the idea of a fractured internet and an internet in which, you know, you can't, everyone can't pull up your website because there are requirements that say things have to be hosted over here or data has to be over here. So there was an Ars Technica article on January 21st, Russia tries to force Facebook and Twitter to relocate servers to Russia. Um, one of the dangers that we have right now is that regulators who don't understand the technology and, and don't maybe even understand the basics of how the Internet works may do some fundamental damage to key uh, core you know, principles of, of how the Internet is, is, to, is to work. And, and so that, that's a risk. I mean, I do think that the backlash is coming, and I do think that we need some regulation. We can't just say, hey, Facebook, can't you guys just behave? Um, you know, they're not going to be able to regulate themselves. Um, you want to speak to that Washington Post uh, backlash askew article? Yeah, there's a really great article that, um, uh, well, I'll leave it to you uh, uh, listeners, whether or not you agree with this or not. I certainly have some opinions about it. It's called, Is the Tech Backlash Going to Skew? And it's from uh, Larry Downs and Blair Levin. And Len Levin is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. Larry Downs is a project director for the Georgetown Center for Business and Public Policy. And basically the broad contention is that uh, the criticism of technology, maybe what Wes and I do call the technology correction, is uh, is the wrong way to go about this. And all of the hand-wringing about technology and the demand that governments come in and regulate is the wrong way to go about this. And to be clear, both Wes and I have railed against regulation on this podcast in the past, in part because a, you know, an un- a uh, couth way of, of of regulating would stifle growth and and innovation in a way that would probably be pretty damaging broadly to the technology field and so and, and maybe break maybe break the internet too yeah. right I mean right. That. Yeah. yeah absolutely and in fact you know this notion that uh you know the uh 
government staying out of the the way of uh, the internet uh, and getting rid of net neutrality. The first decision, um, a big decision of the FCC under the Trump administration, is is a good example of that. That by um, uh, over well, kind of over under regulating the internet because it's not really over, it's not really uh, under. It's a little bit of both. Um, could have the impact of ultimately hurting the net itself. But their claim is that instead of, you know, overreacting, uh, maybe overcorrecting technology, right, instead we should just allow the next thing to help fix it. And actually that inspires a whole category, I think, of, of discussions about can technology save us from itself, right? Like are there things technology can do? And you see this already a little bit. There's uh, every major computer manufacturer now has started uh, uh, putting technologies in their technology to try to answer criticisms. The blue light filters that appear now in most modern mobile devices, uh, the um, uh, time on screen monitors, uh, uh, iOS and Android both have components now that judge the amount of time you're spending in their apps. Instagram itself known for being somewhat of an addicting app uh, now uh, measures and gives you reports the amount of time you spend on screen watching warn you when you exceed the amount of time that you yourself have set, uh, the technology might itself be able to create a mechanism to save people from itself. And so fear not, uh, dear tech users, at some point tech will kind of correct itself by providing options to you know, self-regulate. So uh, Wes, do you believe that to be true or is the answer somewhere in the middle perhaps? Well, we definitely need to have um, educated, smart, and moral leaders, right? Um, and I think that the level of knowledge about the Internet and how it works and technology, as exhibited by some of the recent hearings that we had and some of the questions that were asked, um, you know, it just we, we, we need to do some, some work there. Um, I think, and th- this is interesting, and, and the, the, uh, the woman I mentioned, Shoshana Zuboff, who is the author of Surveillance Capitalism, yeah, you know, I mean, she's she's definitely left of center, and and she talks about you know pr- some that we need some some regulation, right? That, and, and this is fascinating because this is about capitalism, actually. You know, it, we we really don't want capitalism to be completely like let's think uh, colonization of the Americas and uh, exploitation of oh I don't know maybe say the island of of Hispaniola and, and Haiti or you know just all kinds of ways that you know the uh, you know the environment has been raped and uh, you know we you know we've just we, we've had a lot we've had a lot of exploitation I happen to you know study Latin America quite a bit in in college and travel there and um, anyway, you, you really don't want capitalism to be completely unleashed where there are no limits and people can do whatever they want, take whatever they want, exploit whatever they want. Uh, so she, I think that what I'm trying to say is regulation has a role and, um, perhaps, and I was a fan to, to, to a degree of, of Ronald Reagan and some of the things that he had to do, but I certainly don't support this idea, you know, that government is evil, it is the enemy, and that, that all regulation is, is just horrific, right? There's uh, plenty of examples of where regulation has run afoul. We've got, you know, cases where uh, monopolies or, or different, you know, businesses are, are, are just kept in place because of, of regulation and things like that. So I'm not a regulation good guy, but I definitely have come to a point where I do not believe, for instance, Facebook is going to be able to behave well without 
significant pressure coming from the outside. But I'm going to say that it doesn't have to just be, and it shouldn't just be in the form of regulation, right? Because we're users and this is a corporation. And so, you know, corporations are responsive to, you know, what large numbers of users do and to, you know, pressure that's brought in, in, in the media and things like that. So regulation isn't the only answer, but I also don't think that a complete laissez-faire approach to uh, capitalism in general or what we're, what we are, have seen and we're living in right now. We're just kind of asleep to it, but the, the age of surveillance capitalism that we're in today, um, it will not change if we don't have some concerted group action. And part of what that may lead to is some regulation, but I hope that it's thoughtful and I hope we're very careful because, you know, if you change some, some basic things about the internet, you, you could, you could break it. And, uh, we certainly, I don't think want to see that, but human freedom, it's messy, right? You let people make choices and oh my gosh, what are they going to do? Look at yeah. this crazy stuff. And that's also where we as, as educational technologists, as teachers, as leaders in school, in our communities, we need to continue to remind people about the powerful, positive, good uses, right? Even of sharing, hey, what we're doing right now, being able to share ideas, you know, being able to collaborate with Peggy, who's out in Arizona and, you know, being able to, um, you know, just have, have our minds connect with each other and, and, and learn. It's phenomenal, right? Like I would not want to give this up. I, I don't want to go back to 20 years ago and, and be my age at that time. I want to be living right now in, in this moment. And we need to sometimes remind people of that because there can be so much negativity and amplification of, of the darkness yeah. that, you know, sometimes people are ready to just throw it all out. So, right. And let me remind our, our listeners, if you probably already know this, if you, if you follow Wes at all, like, like Wes is the advocate for, playing with media, right? He's the advocate for people should create stuff with media. And one of the ways we could drown out, I think some of the, the uh, less than desirable things about these technologies is to participate in them ourselves, right? Like I'm the first to admit that YouTube has tons of problems, right? And they're banning channels and uh, they don't want to be giving voices to negative this, this or that. But at the same time, and I think I've mentioned this a couple of times now on the podcast, I found channels uh, I, I, that I love that only have maybe 10, 12,000 subscribers, right? But they're doing interesting things and they have unique knowledge that I don't have. And they, they, they put on compelling stories that are interesting to a, a, a mass audience. And um, I'm sorry, not a mass audience, which is exactly the point, a small, narrow audience, right? The long tails we've described here in the past. So let's remember that as well. And, you know, uh, you know you're certainly not going to hear the two guys hosting the ed tech situation room saying, well, time to call it a technology movement and shut her down. Right. Instead, let's work hard to balance this so we don't lose the amazing things that have happened um, in this technology movement. Amen, Brother Knifer. Preach it on. That's right. Uh, a couple quick little articles. There's a ton of other things to kind of get to, and I'd love to, to you know, get to some more of these. Uh, just put this one in ABC News, January 20th. University of Oklahoma sorority kicks out member over racist video. Um, you know, we all need to remind our students and each other that at any moment, any of us can can touch an electric fence, you know, via social media and the phones that are in people's, you know, pockets or, you know, in in, in their purses. Um, there are ridiculous things that happen all over the world. And we just haven't, you know, had an opportunity for those to be shared. And I'm not saying we need to watch, you know, 
mainstream news media all the time. Uh, but there have been some students, you know, painting their faces black, uh, using the N word. And hey, guess what? Now you're you're out of your sorority. You're not, you know, kicked out of the University of Oklahoma. But uh, it, it's a big deal. So, um, <laughs> you know, those kinds of social media stories. I don't know. Perhaps kids get tired of those. Um, but we it's we need. I wrote a wrote a post actually last week about uh, Facebook and Twitter, and I called it "Why You Should Not Quit Facebook or Twitter." You know, pointing out that like we're not all celebrities. And in fact, that's that's I think a really good thing. Um, we're not all going to be the victims of trolls. Um, there's really you know powerful reasons to use these tools, but. Let's be careful, right? Because if you choose to speak to a particular issue, if you use a particular hashtag, um, or if you're doing something, you know, really inappropriate, uh, there's chances that that could, you know, be put on Reddit and suddenly, you know, hundreds of thousands of people could be taking a look at it. So uh, last little quick one I have this is a Forbes article from January 21st. It's called The End of Apple. And we don't have that many uh, articles, you know, a, a, about um, Apple in this week's show. But there's an incredible graph there showing uh, the stock price of Apple, uh, which has crashed about 35 percent from its November peak, erasing four hundred and forty six billion dollars in shareholder value. The biggest wipeout of wealth in a single stock ever. And it's saying it's only the beginning. And so the dirty secret that it's showing um, it, they're, they're talking about is our shifts. And so, you know, Apple has sustained its growth model based upon the most recently, you know, the increased price of, of the iPhone. Um, but that's just not really sustainable over time. Um, they're not going to be able to continue rising, raising their prices. Things that have happened in China with respect to, you know, the rise of Huawei and, and actually the buying of electronics becoming a nationalistic thing over there, you know. Um, and then also just, just, you know, the cost and things like that. So Apple's trying to make a shift. They're trying to, um, you know, switch over to more services. I don't think that the comparison to Nokia that they've got in here is necessarily fair, but I do think it's really dramatic. And, and, and so here's the thought also about the classroom. Like, are, is anybody out there talking about this in your economics class with students? Like what's happened to the, the stock price of Apple um, is a is a pretty shocking and, and amazing thing. And it'd be a really good thing to talk about and to grapple with um, because there's a lot of things happening, right? There's things about the Chinese economy slowing, um, the, the the dependence that they have on on different developing markets, et cetera. So, you know, we've said it before. I'm, we're not. I'm not the the sky is falling guy, um, but there's some big stuff changing with Apple, and it's certainly an important topic to discuss, especially if you're studying economics, if you're helping students understand, let's say, you know, finance markets. Um, you know, um, you know, the, the world as it is in terms of our, you know, globally interconnected economy and the ways in which these, you know, companies, because of network effects and other factors, right? The Apples, the Googles, the Amazons, the Microsofts, massive, massive companies that have generated so much wealth. Um, just because they've been on top and, and Apple did, I think, have a market cap of over a trillion dollars for a little while, you know, doesn't mean they're necessarily going to stay there forever. And innovation is going to continue to be important. So what will be the next innovative product? You know, can Apple do that? You know, absent Steve Jobs, we will see. Jason, are you going to be abandoning all Google products in the next month to just buy your what, what's the name of the Google smart speaker um, that costs so much? 
Oh, uh, the Max or something. Well, Google, yeah, Google Max is the is the um, is the Google one, but you know, I'm, I'm oh, you're about the Apple one. The yeah, Home it's like or... HomePod. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, so they're, they're on... so incompatible with other right. things. Like, what, right. how can you resist? And by the way, that, that that was available on Woot last week for a discount price. So you know the uh, HomePod is dead when Woot is selling uh, the HomePod. So I want to transition a little bit to one of the topics related to this because I'm really interested in this topic because it's it's one of the things that I think Apple uh, claims superiority and uh, justifiably claims superiority in. So two interesting things have happened in the last week. First, Google has purchased the assets from I think it was was it Swatch. Um, uh, some famous watch manufacturer, and I'm actually have to bring up the article now. Oh, Fossil was the name of the watch that that they they purchased all the digital uh, assets, all of the smart uh, uh, watch assets from Fossil Watch, and uh, Fossil was making you know Android watches, so it's not like they are you know it, it, it's not like they're selling you know, like the watch stuff, there's some of the digital watch stuff. And, you know, they wouldn't have had a digital watch division if it wasn't for Google and Android Wear, which is the name of the operating system that Google releases for uh, wearables like that. that. But a lot of people think that this is a um, a sign to come that uh, Android Wear is going to have an opportunity to kind of refurbish itself as Google maybe decides to make their own um, their own watch, kind of like they do with the Pixel Book, the the Chromebook that they release, and also the uh, the Pixel phones, right? Well, uh, juxtaposition that with the fact that Apple has let folks know, and I think this was part of maybe a, a conference call or an investor call, but uh, a Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, has uh, talked about the fact that apparently. Um, the good folks at Apple um, are now um, selling more a- or, uh, Apple Watch uh, uh, devices than they were selling iPods at the height of the iPod era. And the thing that's interesting about that, of course, is that minus iPods, there would be no Apple computer today. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. It was the device that brought them back. It ultimately led to the iPhone, which became the world's most uh, uh, popular phone and ushered in the smartphone era. So iPods are, are super important. And the fact they're selling more uh, Apple watches than they were selling iPods at the height of their iPod thing is huge, right? But at, at, despite that fact, Android Wear can't take off at all, right? Like I have been a briefly Android Wear user, and I keep going back to my Fitbit, although interestingly enough, I'm not wearing either of them tonight. Um, the uh, the fact that Apple seems to have the the number of wearables, and to be honest, every Apple Watch user I know is still wearing their Apple Watch. None. Zero of the Android Wear uh, users that I know are still wearing their Android Wear watches. And so, um, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that, that Apple's going into places that I don't think Android can really go into because of the kind of uh, fractured Android market, right? Uh, they make the software and the hardware so they can do things like, you know, put a heartbeat monitor and other kinds of health monitors in the watch, which they can then hook up to interesting services that can do things like predict heart attacks and other other interesting pieces, but I was extremely interested in um, uh, that factoid. And Wes, I think you were talking about it at one point. You're still not wearing an Apple Watch, right? No, I, in fact, this, I have a Swatch Watch. I got that was a little, you know, 
uh, let's celebrate after the dissertation. Uh, interestingly, it's a watch that was never touched by human hands when it was manufactured. It was entirely machine created. So, no, I'm analog, but I am definitely very, very interested. Um, just haven't been in a, a situation with lots of extra disposable income. So that's yep. a purchase postponed for the future. But uh, I, I think, you know, we're, it's the number of generations we've gone through, the capability, um, you know, kind of still holding out for video conferencing over it. I, that'll, that'll happen at some point. But I have de- I have made that shift to say I'm just going to stay, you know, in the Apple fold at this point because of our investment as a family and just how easy things are to be able to share media um, and and that kind of seamless integration. So but I, but interestingly, I've looked at fossil watches. Um, it's been a, been a while. But when I was you know shopping, I was, uh, you know, checking those out and seeing seeing what they could do. And uh, definitely interesting. Interesting to see Google make that move. Okay, well, um, I thought it was earlier than this. We, we're near the top of the hour. Is there any of the topics you want to get in this week, Dr. Fair? Um, do you want to just throw maybe one or two of, of the data privacy ones uh, in there? You, you've got a sure. few of them tossed in. Yeah, there's one I want to point out just because I think it's an interesting uh, uh, intersection of other topics we've talked about tonight. Um, that apparently um, there is suspicion, although no proof, that the 10-year challenge, uh, which went around Facebook and Instagram over the last week where people posted a picture of them today and a picture 10 years ago to kind of mark the difference, um, I would have done so, except that I don't really like what 10 years has done to me, and uh, I am a much grayer person than I was just a few years ago, um, and I was looking for a funny joke to post, like uh, some people that are, are smart Alex like me uh, also did, but uh, there was, I think, a security researcher in Canada that claimed that that is actually a, a hidden plant of a fake, um, a viral challenge that was intended to give Facebook incredible fodder of two photos of the same person to help tweak AI logarithms for facial recognition. Now, let, let me first say that if Facebook pulled that off, I, I would almost want to give them a slow clap because it is the most deviously delicious uh, uh, a scheme to try to build a database I have ever seen. So, uh, if, if there is some nerd over at Facebook HQ that can take credit for this, uh, tip of the hat, sir, for, uh, really just nailing it, right? Cause it was an extraordinary, um, a challenge. But, um, you know, I, it, it seems innocuous, right? Seems like it, it's just, you know, good, clean, viral fun. And, um, it, I, I'm, I, I tend to believe that's not the case, but it's not out of the realm of possibility for me that someone might have wanted to do that. Um, you know, to do that. So again, be careful, I guess, out there. And remember, even things that seem like they might be, you know, just a, um, a, a, a fun thing could actually be something feeding the AI beast. And so, Wes, by the way, uh, what did you look like 10 years ago? <laughs> a little narrower, a little skinnier. Um, I uh, appreciate you putting the Krebs on security article in there from January 19th about the $773 million password, quote, mega breach. Uh, Brian Krebs, one of the foremost security journalists online today, you know, points out this was several years old, overblown, and it's, again, kind of an unfortunate chicken little situation, right? Because, you know, data breaches are a big deal. Um, I'll be speaking to all of our faculty in my little, you know, three minutes or so that I get in our faculty meeting at the end of this this month uh, about phishing, right? Because most data breaches are occurring 
today because of social engineering, because of folks who are clicking on things that they shouldn't. Um, and there are, there are real issues. But anyway, that was a that was a good, you know, let's filter the the hype from the fact. Last one. Um, this is actually a Twitter video. My title I've got for it is AI driven facial recognition attendance in Chinese schools. Um, this is from a, a Twitter user who focuses on China tech named Matthew Brennan. Um, and I'll just read you the subtitle he's got by this video. So the video is all these students that are coming in and they're having facial recognition technology identify who they are. And so up on the interactive uh, video board in the front of the classroom, you know, their pictures and their names are coming up because they've just walked right into the room. And so he says implications of living in a world of ubiquitous AI driven facial recognition and computer vision, no possible way to skip class anymore. Class monitoring system clocks you the minute you walk through the door. But of course, what's even more insidious than that, I think, and really, really a pretty poor use of technology, but this is part of the surveillance state and all the stuff that's happening are the ways in which those technologies are being used to say, are you paying attention? Do you look like you're distracted? You know, um, do you, do you think you need a nudge? I mean, how, how often until we have electric, you know, electrodes that are, that are hooked up, that will you know, give us a little jolt and a shock if we're not, you know, sitting up and looking bright eyed and bushy tailed. It's a, uh, you know, rather, rather grim. So we cannot end on such a grim note. We're at the top of the hour. We do Geeks of the Week. Um, I'll go first. Mine I learned today from a student in a computer science class. I had an opportunity to uh, look at a code review, and uh, the website is called Twitter. Uh, see what awesomeness you can create when limited to only 140 characters of JavaScript and a canvas. So if you click on the link that I have there to an example, this is the one that the students shown. And uh, much in the same way that I like how or love how Scratch will let you remix projects and it shows you the genealogy of who originally came up with this and then had somebody else tweak it and had somebody else tweak it. You know, this is a remix of, you know, um, 888 by user JCZI, JCZim, I guess. Um, and so anyway, it's just a, a really cool visualization um, you know, that, that involves some higher level math that I don't understand. Uh, so anyway, that might be something cool to show to your computer science students, uh, your mathematicians. And it reminds me of the Mandelbrot series. If you've ever played with some of those where you can, you know, tweak some of the algorithms, but it shows mathematical, you know, visualization of, of these, uh, these shapes and, and uh, patterns that are being created mathematically. So, not something I'm going to be actually teaching to explain ex how it works, but um, it's something fun to play with and allows you to visualize code in a different way. Jason, what do you have for us this week? Uh, just a reminder, uh, this Friday is the early bird deadline for the Northwest Council for Computer Education Conference to be held at the end of February in fabulous Seattle, Washington. And I, I do work with NCCE. It's where I book provincial development through. And I just want to point out they're, what, they're having three different summits on day one of the conference, including a leadership summit uh, featuring actually returning speaker Eric Scheninger, the uh, former Twitter principal. I can't wait to hear what his, how his shtick has changed since I've last heard him. He's a very popular international speaker talking about ways to kind of modernize your school and to embrace uh, the world of technology to make schools better. And uh, you can go to ncc.org, uh, click on the conference link, find out more about the summits, attend either the, the full conference or maybe just one of the wonderful summits, including a popular Pacific Northwest event, the uh, Teacher Librarian Summit, which is a very popular event every year. So Wes, where can people find you on the internet? 
Well, unfortunately, in face-to-face, they will not find me at NCCE. So uh, I have had to cancel that because of some work-related situations. And I will I will use my crystal ball to predict that there may be some dramatic changes in Wes's work environment, you know, coming coming uh, in, in, a, in a few months. Um, hopefully, you know, great ones. And they, they may or not involve moving, but I'm not going to be at NCCE. However, I will be online, and I am on Twitter at W Fryer. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, is where I am periodically writing some things. I need to get kicked off again, and I will be on my uh, weekly newsletter and sending out a video and uh, you know sharing there. So how about yourself, Dr. Neifer? Where can we continue to learn at your feet? I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach, where I like to tweet out, you know, 10, 15 articles a week of things I'm reading. I like to read a lot uh, in technology, uh, political, and also uh, educational journalism, something that I'm very interested in. Um, I also, again, work with NCC, ncc.org, or the Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And again, this Friday is the early bird deadline for the NCC conference. Come join a really wonderful group of thousands of educators from Pacific Northwest to talk tech. Uh, So Wes, I guess this is a podcast though, right? So where can people find the podcast? So we have uh, several spots anywhere you find uh, finer podcasts. You should be able to find us. Uh, Just look for the EdTech Situation Room. Ask your smart assistant to play the latest episode of the EdTech Situation Room. You can find us specifically on edtechsr.com where you'll find a 32 kilobit audio version as well as a smaller video version that you can download if you're so inclined. Or you can always subscribe to us on our YouTube channel where we're up to 55 some odd subscribers. So we would love to hear from you, love to hear any feedback, particularly the the project I mentioned about surveillance capitalism, surveillance state and digital citizenship. Um, Lots of books that I have not read uh, yet, but uh, just have been kind of uh, collecting. And so anyway, would love any feedback that people have on that and think that we need to continue not just, you know, reading these articles and, and, you know, enjoying learning, which, which is great about them, but also thinking about the ways um, that we may want to become politically involved, either at, at local, state, or national levels um, on these kinds of issues. We need people who are informed about technology and can speak into these conversations because we don't want people that, that, that absolutely don't understand the technology, you know, making decisions that could have dramatically negative uh, effects on these powerful tools which we have at our fingertips. So it has been great to visit with you tonight. We want to invite you back. Thank you, Peggy, for joining us live. If you're able to join us live normally at uh, 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, we are here on YouTube Live. So please, uh, you know, send your snow shovels and your salt bags up to Jason. He will need them. Uh, look for, you know, where the beard will, will go next. It's just one of the extra treats you get. If you tune in live, you know, you get to see the beard. So until next time. Stay safe and stay savvy, and we hope to hear from you soon. Good night.